Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. Hey guys, you know what time it is. Welcome to CISO Talk. I hope you're having a great, absolutely magnificent week. If it's your first time listening, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. You can go to YouTube and also subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're about 100 listeners away from being able to monetize and make a little bit of money from there so we don't have to play annoying ads like the ones you heard. I'm kidding. The ads aren't annoying, but you get that concept of being able to make money off of YouTube, you can do that as well. Or go to our website at cyberhubpodcast.com where you can see the list of all of our podcasts and all the great content we produce. I've got a very special episode today. Joining me online is Russ Young, the legendary CISO over at Caterpillar Financial Services. Russ, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I'm super excited to be here, James. I'm super excited you're here. Um, I, I can't wait to get started. I, th- I think a lot of people um, follow you on LinkedIn, and, and that's how you and I actually connected. And I love LinkedIn because it's like the ultimate like connection tool for, especially during COVID, because you know there's no more networking events. Like, and all networking events are virtual. And then the people who do the networking events are now trying to make them by, by, by region. And you're like, no, no, let me network with everyone from everywhere I want to network with. And so LinkedIn has afforded us that opportunity. Yeah, it's been really good. I love the opportunity just to network with peers uh, that are across the country. So sometimes I'll see, you know, just something really cool come from Netflix or wherever. And I'll just reach out to the CISO or whoever leads their cyber team. And it's surprising how many people are very open to having discussions. And then it just fosters a great learning environment where you can help your peers. It does. So kind of as we get started on um, today's show, just for our listeners, um, could you give them a little bit of background of how you got started in security, kind of what was your path and, and how it all kind of came together for you? Yeah, so I'm probably one of the first generation of CISOs who came into their career knowing from the get-go they wanted to do cybersecurity their whole career. So I started like traditional folks. I did an undergrad in computer science. And then I knew I really wanted to focus in cybersecurity right around my sophomore year. And I did an MBA in information assurance. I went to one of uh, the variety of schools that started focusing on cybersecurity. But Idaho State, where I went, was really unique. And they were the first ones to do an MBA to train CISOs and not just focus on being the security engineer. So after I did that, I had a, a lot of fun in in, federal, in various federal government agencies. So I worked at NSA, I worked at the Federal Reserve, I worked at CIA, and I had a great time in a lot of different places learning how to do cybersecurity in the federal government. After which I switched over about two years ago to Capital One, where I was a divisional CISO really helping the organization improve DevOps pipelines and cloud security. And it was really fun to be part of that cutting edge team. Uh, 
And then I was given uh, a an amazing opportunity to join Caterpillar Financial as a CISO. And it's been my first opportunity to be a CISO. So I'm really loving it. So you have a very, very interesting path because it's kind of like a non-military but government path, right? That a lot of different CISOs, you know, you speak with. Um, I love the path of a journey of a CISO. And, and you, you'll tell our guests later on about kind of like your your vision for a podcast. You might be starting very, very soon that I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy. But you look at the path of how people get into their roles and it's so diverse and it's, it's, it's very different from one person to the other, from people who, you know, volunteer to build a firewall uh, when they were 20 years old at some company that led them down the path of security to people who kind of wanted to go after this, like you, your entire career. So having, you know, having this kind of be your passion, kind of your driven, it's, it's what you studied in college. It's how you moved forward through everything. How, how do you now evaluate people you want to hire? So what are some of the skills that you look for in the people you want to bring on your team? What are some of the qualities you look for in people who are candidates to be part of your, your security team and really grow as part of your organization? Yeah, so there's a couple of key things I really look for. One is whatever the role really focuses around, I want someone to, to, to really take an interest and be an expert in that. So not every role is the same, right? I'll, I'll give you an example. Right now I'm looking to uh, hire a position for uh, third-party risk management, someone who's going to look at all the software that we acquire and make sure we're doing that in a thorough, effective evaluation. So someone who has experience in that is going to be attractive. In addition, I think it's really important to look at how much somebody loves learning and has a passion for it. Because if you love what you do, you're going to be better at it than someone who just goes to work and stops. Naturally, the people who are curious and, and, and passion around it start looking at it in their spare time. And that just helps them become a smarter person where they're just that, that love and passion for learning. And so I look for those sorts of skills. The other things that I would say is I think every office has a no jerk policy. You don't want to hire someone that's going <laughs> to you know, make the rest of the team members bad. And last but not least, communication skills are so key. You can be the smartest guy in the world, but if people don't understand what you say in written or in verbal form, then that really limits your effectiveness to be a good, competent, technical person. Your last point is a very, very good point. So many times people speak technology to people who don't understand technology. And so can you simplify your message across the organization within people who are not within the security team? Because as a security individual, you know, you're, you're always working across multiple different departments within the organization. You can be working with DevOps, you can be working with engineering, architecture, marketing, sales, biz dev, operations, finance. Not all of those people understand technology and can speak the technological gibberish or acronyms. Yeah, and I think that is so key. And it goes both ways, right? Where I may be a subject matter expert in cybersecurity, I share that with the organization. And you have to use technology terms that they understand and, and turn it into business language. But, you know, maybe I'm not an expert in finance. And that CFO or the uh, tax preparer who's looking at all of our statements takes that and turns that into English for me, who's not, you know, a finance or CPA kind of person to understand. So it's that, that ability to communicate to the right customer that really helps an organization to improve the effectiveness across organizations. So we talked a little bit about hiring quality people. One of the biggest kind of discussion points that we often see, um, you know, on LinkedIn with, within different posts, a, a post I made a while ago, which is, um, you know, we, we put out a job description, a job requisite. And a lot of time it goes to your HR team. Not a lot of time, almost most of the time it goes to someone in HR that's kind of setting the bar. And what we've come to kind of understand today and which has been very, very interesting is sometimes the job requisite and the job requirements don't match the role. How do you combat that? How do you ensure that people are given a fair shot at, an, at, at a job? Let's say, for example, like what you're looking for now, third risk, uh, third party risk management. Mm -hmm. 
when um, in a lot of organizations, you know, you'll see, I, I saw a very, very funny post um, where they were asking for someone to have uh, 15 years of experience in a specific framework that's been around for nine years. <laughs> yeah. So that, I think that is a really key point. The first thing I would say is it depends on your organization's flexibility. Sometimes you may have a job posting and you don't really control what that posting is as much as you'd like. This is a software engineering position and it's a generic template that we use for any type of software engineer. Other times you can custom tailor that uh, job description to be exactly like what you want. So I, I think you have to understand where an organization is and you may not have the ability to change that. But once you do get people to start applying to the particular role, I think the next thing you have to focus on is how do I have a really good interview? And what I do is before I start interviewing the candidate, what I want to do is prepare them for success. And what I say is, here's the role. Here's what I'm looking for someone to do. These are what I believe the core competencies and how I will measure success for this position. And then after that, then I start grilling someone on their technical competencies or communication skills to make sure they're the right fit. And I think what this does is had I just grilled them up front, they wouldn't really know. They would provide guidance about what they think the position is. And that may be wrong because if the, the job criteria isn't perfectly posted, they're going to be answering the wrong questions, right? So having that positive con conversation up front to align expectations to say, well, let me tell you what I couldn't put in the job posting and how the position really is or who we report to and what the structure of the organization looks like to provide a much more viable conversation going forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the ultimate conversation between um, and, and I think where a lot of times we're missing it and, and I'm guilty of this, I think like almost everyone else is we put out the job requisite, we put out the job description and we end up with a list of, I like to call it generic candidates. And, mm -hmm. you know, you describe the people you look for as being, you know, self-learning, driven, passionate. And sometimes those people don't make it through the traditional confines of what we look for, meaning they may not have a bachelor's degree. Um, they may not have all the years of experience in a specific role, but they could have some experience in, in, in a different role, but then they never end up getting even the shot to go for it because essentially HR marks them off the list. And, you know, I'm curious to see how we overcome that um, as, as we kind of grow, because we do have kind of a, I don't want to say we have a workforce shortage, but we do have a shortage of talent and security and kind of how do we how do we even that talent out with with some of the job requirements? You know, this is something I've been thinking a lot about with the talent. You know, as a CISO, I am surprised how many vendors come to me every day offering to subsidize uh, my contract workforce, right? To say, we have 10 people we can bring for any of these things. So, I don't really feel as much there is that talent shortage because I can go hire as many contractors as I have budget to do. But what I do think is, how do I get the right staff employees to work for me full time? And that's a very different conversation uh, than you know getting the talent. It's getting the right talent who wants to be a part of your organization, right? And and there's different things to think about of. How do I get the right job requirements so that I don't filter out all the candidates beforehand? How do I have it open in the right locations where maybe it's a hundred percent job, uh, hundred percent work from home, so I can bring in candidates from all across the United States instead of just the one city where I'm living in? Right. right. So, a lot of things you can do to maybe uh, optimize that upfront. And the other thing is, even if you don't have the perfect candidate. How might you get a candidate that you can bring up to speed in three months with a little bit of training, and then you now have the perfect candidate, right? I love that approach. I really love that approach because that is the the, the true approach of, am I looking to hire someone for um, a specific project or implementation? Then let me go contract that. But if I'm looking for something long-term, then let me go find that right person. Um, you know, I've found... Um, 
I'll, I'll post jobs on LinkedIn all the time or Twitter, and I'll get a slethera of CVs that I end up forwarding to HR saying, you know, I want all these people interviewed. Like start the interview process with, with these specific people simply because, you know, a lot of them just have a specific skill or talent or approach, um, you know, just like the desire to want to learn. And I found that those people tend to be the people who um, never want to let you down, that commit not to the, I don't, I don't want people to work 16 hours a day, right? But if I need them to do that, there's no, there's no questions asked. They're there. They're, they're not looking at the clock. They're not looking at, hey, it's a, you know, it's a seven o'clock, James. Uh, we got to be done anytime soon. And like, I just, I don't have that. Those are the kind of people I love to bring on my team. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's uh, some really good movies that talk about this. Uh, there's a movie where they talk about people joining, uh, working for an or- a Google organization. I won't say the name of the movie, but they talk about who would you want to spend, you know, an eight hour travel trip with. Right. And you think about it, you're going to spend all this time and work with somebody. You want to make that an enjoyable experience and you want to have someone who brings a lot of value and mission impact to the organization. So your ability to do both of those things is really what's going to make it a positive work environment, which is going to bring more people to stay there and want to stay there longer than other organizations. Great point. We, we speak a little bit about the people we look for. What are some of the skills people should look for in, in a CISO they want to work with? What are some of the talents that successful CISOs need in order to really successfully lead a team across an organization and an enterprise? There's a couple of key things that I'm kind of seeing in my career as what's been really helpful for me. The first is the ability to communicate and influence. And let me give you an example of that. So early in my career, I might have an idea of an approach and another part of the business organization would have a different idea. And if we go head to head, neither of us wins, right? Uh, They're saying this, I'm saying this, and it, it doesn't get to a better outcome. And what I learned was a really good influence skill, which is how do we both identify the objectives and the goals of the project, standardize around that and agree on that first, and then talk about here's the multitude of approaches and which one best allows the organization to achieve those goals and what are the flaws with each approach to achieving the goals. Then it's not my approach versus their approach. Then it's how do we get the better objective and goals for the organization? So that was one way I learned how to influence. Another thing I think that's really important is being flexible. You take any security developer uh, or anyone who reviews vulnerabilities, you could be very black and white and say, you have 10,000 vulnerabilities, you have to fix all of these. And, you know, that's really never going to work for an organization. Obviously, you do want to reduce vulnerabilities and improve risk levels at a company, but you need to understand what the resources are to implement those changes, understand where the business initiatives are, and being able to give and take on priorities so that the business can be successful in making money, which ultimately pays for cyber as an organization. So being flexible and allowing them to do what they need to do while also improving the risk, I think, is another key aspect. And, and last but not least, I think you have to be someone who's more of an educator. You know, in some of these leadership positions, you need to train the next rising generation of talent who reports to you. You need to build successors. You need to do the individual development plans, the career coaching, so that it's a great place to work for, and the people below you are smarter than you. And, and they probably already are, but make them even smarter and make them more expensive uh, because of the skills they bring to the organization. That's a, um, a slethora of great points there. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you, you were spot on in every, um, on, on every quality and remark there. I think a lot of times we see the battle of, uh, the battle of the minds, um, where people for some reason have this expectation that a CEO or a CIO or anyone in C-suite should be the smartest guy in the room. And a lot of times you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. You just have to be the right guy to make the right decisions. 
when the time comes and let the smart people run the show. Um, and, 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 and if, if more people adopted that, you would see less turnover, I think. Yeah. And, and I just think from my experience, you know, you go in kind of naively into the industry thinking, well, this is the policy. Everybody should follow this thing. Right. And then when you really look at the human element and the behavioral decisions that are made, then you understand why they don't do it. Hey, their incentives are rewarding new features, not maintenance. Right. And right. all those little things that help an organization. And so it's, it's as a CISO, I can't control things. All I can do is influence them, right? I'm not the guy who has hands-on keyboard changing the configuration settings or fixing the bugs. I have to convince that person that this is the right thing to do given all the other things that he can do, he or she can do at that point in time. So let's kind of talk a little bit about something you're very passionate about, cybersecurity. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, love to. And so, you know, as a CISO and in your previous roles, what aspect of security do you spend the most time on? So right now, my biggest focus is product security. Everybody has a different background that they bring to an organization. I spend a lot of time on the offensive pen testing side of the house and then what I did is I took that knowledge and started building DevOps organizations and building DevSecOps and secure code pipelines. So that is where I'm focused on. How do we build really good applications that are resilient against attacks that have high availability to achieve all the desired outcomes of the business organization? And and that's just my niche, right? Other people have different niches. You may came, come from like a SOC incident response type background, but they brought me in because of my ability to understand how to improve product security for a bank. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that because you, you bring up an excellent point here, which is your focus on, which I believe, you know, I always compare cyber and a CISO's plan to football. Right? Mm -hmm. You don't win a championship with a bad offensive line or a defensive line. They're not the most attractive draft picks, but they're the ones that are going to be there for the next 15, 20 years. And they're going to hold down. They're going to anchor your defensive success or your offensive success. You know, we're, we're all going to see this year, just how good Tom Brady is outside of a Belichick system. Yeah. Is Tom Brady a product of a system and that's what made him a great quarterback or is he a great quarterback? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point of what is the framework and decisions that you bring. And one of my friends shared with me something that I hadn't heard of before that I think is going to be really good for your listeners. If you really look at CISOs, the biggest value that they bring to the table is an understanding of prioritization of work. At the end of the day, nobody has enough resources to do everything to make perfect cybersecurity. So you have to make trade-offs. And then the question is, what are the trade-offs do you want to make as an organization? And how do we prioritize those amongst all the other competing requirements? So I view my goal for the organization is, how do I identify the most important high-value risks? So if I think phishing is, or if I think fraud is, or if I think third-party risks with data leaving our company or web application vulnerabilities... I need to identify and prioritize those risks in a, some type of a order or a list. And then after I do that, then I need to build effective countermeasures that use people, processes, and tools for each of those core risks to say, this is the most likely thing to happen, and here's how we've mitigated the impact around these core risks. And I think when you take that prioritization to the board and you say, I think these are the most important priorities, but I want you to verify these. Maybe I'm, I'm missing something to make sure I understand where you're going as an organization and if these really are the biggest risks. And if they say, well, no, our biggest risk is we think our cloud transformation and our business enablement is a really big thing, and that's not on your list, that's a really good board discussion to have to really build you know, that appropriate way to enable and safeguard the business yeah and kind of going you're you're absolutely right i think going back to your your first point though when you talked about you know 
um, a code security pipeline and, and, you know, turning DevOps to DevSecOps. That is your foundation of security, right? That's how you stop chasing fires and you start to create strong foundations going forward. I think so, so many times people focus on the next shiny box, the next big tool, the next, you know, kind of detection thing. And they they almost lose sight of building the offensive and defensive line, which is, what do we do? We build software, we have technology, we have products, and we got to make sure those are good from the onset, that they're not just, you know, we don't have to keep a fullback to block. We can, you know, bring in a tight end and have the tight end run route. Yeah, completely. You look at the CIS top 20 controls that they tell for any organization. The key lesson learned there is you need to have an effective asset inventory, right? If you don't know what you have, how can you protect it and how can you measure it? And that is so hard to do for so many organizations. And and do we have that effective, you know, office linebacker to enable that to be successful for an organization? Yeah, I think asset um, management it has been one of my biggest challenges as a CISO because I don't get gray hair um, because I enjoy you know like like my gray hair yeah I have a 15 year old and she definitely is one of the drivers um, <laughs> but, but my other driver is most definitely the fact that I, I, I work a lot as a CISO with um, companies that are in the startup phase or you know just before a series A or right after a series A funding and so you're trying to communicate security in a very early stage to a very immature organization a lot of times. And so you start to talk about asset management and asset discovery. And what do we have? And what are we building? And where are we building it? And who's building it? And how many people are contributing to the build? And where are they from? And, you know, the the, the, the founders who are product driven not security driven start to scratch their heads and go well i don't know well that we got this well he's doing something here i don't know what he's doing and and so you kind of have to bring that all in and i find that to be a very very uh tiresome project at the end of it if when you're able to map everything out people go oh wow great this is awesome uh, but the process of just getting them to map it out and give you information is is almost like pulling teeth. It's like yeah, and it's trying to get so, his tooth out in Castaway. And, and it's getting harder where you might have been able to do it before with, hey, let's just get the IP addresses of all of our servers sitting in these VMware instances. You know, now in the cloud where, hey, something, you know, lasts for five minutes in an Amazon Lambda job, right? How do we make sure we inventory those things, right? It it gets a lot more complicated when you think of things and you have 20 different types of service offerings compared to just a traditional web server that we used to have 10 years ago. See, and this is where my concern for remote work comes in. And I'll tell you why. Because in an office setting, I can go and hang out at the DevOps part of the business, right? And I can um, have conversations. Hey, what are you guys working on? What's going on? Um, you can have those water cooler conversations. You can take a few of them to lunch and, and, and hear a little bit about what they're working on. And you can get some insight that otherwise you wouldn't get. And I feel like those relationships now, uh, being that we're all remote, um, tend to kind of go on the back burner. And some of that is, you know, having, having worked for several Intel agencies, you realize that sometimes the best Intel isn't the kind you intercept online. It's that conversation you overheard someone talking about that lets you know where to go look online to find the right information you need. Yeah, you know, the biggest thing I think that is lost in this whole COVID work from home world is the ability to have lunch with someone, right? And it's so effective to take your team out to have a morale building lunch. You know, you get to learn about their family life. You get to learn about all these things that are going on. And that builds trust, that builds quality of conversations with folks. And when you're in these Zoom or team meetings, do folks really want to you know, spend an extra hour in a meeting to talk about that? Uh, maybe, maybe not. But if you're around food, it just naturally happens. It's like going to a campfire. You know, Everybody sits and talks and kind of gets to know each other. And that brings a lot of opportunities to improving the corporate organization as well as building uh, buddies and favors, 
right? You you have lunch with everybody for uh, a solid year. Now, if I call that person on the phone and said, hey, I need something really bad, I may not be at the top of his list, but because he likes me from going to lunch for the past year, he might be willing to do something extra. And that's something that may be lost in this work from home COVID world. Yeah, I think that it's going to take very creative HR people to maintain a remote workforce and build those kind of relationships and camaraderie with, you know, within an organization. There's going to be, that's going to be the revolution of this, um, is, is can HR and really take care of that? Because um, you're absolutely right. When people aren't having lunch together, when people aren't sitting around food, when you're on a Zoom meeting, you know, you don't know who you, the guy's, you know, spouse, kids could be right next to him. So stuff that he may share <laughs> during lunch, he may not want to share in front of his kids or, or, or spouse or partners or roommates or whatnot. And so it creates a whole new level of, 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 of challenges. As we kind of look at some of the um, security projects you've, you've worked on, um, what's been one security project where you said, I loved working on this project. And why was that? So I'm going to tell you a project that nobody thinks is fun or sexy. That was one of the most <laughs> eye-opening security projects that I ever did. It was using time cards. So I managed a DevOps organization, and we had a variety of developers building different things. And what we wanted to understand was how much of our developer time was being spent on new features how much was being spent on education and awareness and adoption of the tool by marketing to the customers of the other developers who would use our product, and how much was the O&M, the operations and maintenance activities of patching and configuring the server uh, to make sure it stayed compliant and, and relevant. And so we recorded uh, different types of tags in their office hour or in their uh, month weekly or monthly reporting metrics to say how much time are they spending in each of them. And what this really allowed me as a manager to see is, hey, on certain applications that we were running, we might have a 50 to 70% maintenance time dedicated from a particular team member. And that allowed me to say, okay, if we took this particular technology to the next generation, could we reduce the maintenance on this application by 20 or 30%. And if I have five people that are spending, you know, half of their time on maintenance, I can now quantify those security improvements. So two and a half people of work. And if I can reduce that by X percentage, and I know that dollar amount of each developer or contractor I'm paying for, I had a really, really good way where I could say, I'm going to reduce my cost by this and I can use future headcount that I didn't have based off that cost savings. And that was a really cool thing that I just never knew how to fund security from some of the lowered maintenance costs going forward. So maintenance costs are rarely attributed as part kind of they're almost as a foregone conclusion within most budgets what made you go down that route what was kind of like the driver behind it the driver was i realized we were spending most of our time and resources on people focused maintenance activities compared to the infrastructure or licensing costs so that's where the biggest part of my budget went and if you're trying to save budget, you want to focus on where your biggest expenditures are, right? And, and that's where I kind of keyed into this. But then I didn't know, you know, what specifically was and how could I quantify that? And you can do it in, you know, 10 million JIRA story points, but I would never recommend that versus having one time card that somebody does every 40 hours to kind of show 20 of my hours were spent on maintenance activities, and then that really allows you to see where your biggest IT transformation activities are and have a way to quantify the opportunity cost of those endeavors. That's brilliant. That's a, that's a great way of looking at it. Um, let's talk a little bit about CISO challenges. 
So obviously there's a set of challenges that, that, that we're starting to overcome and, and others where we still need work to do. What challenges do you feel like we're over the hump from here on on its smooth sailing? And what challenges do you see us still being in rough waters on? So I think we've gotten over the hump on traditional security roles of what does a firewall do? What does endpoint detection look like? What does antivirus? What does you know, an a SOC look like? Those things have enough years and tools behind them to be very well managed, right? Now, maybe every tool isn't 100% effective. It may have a 70% coverage rate, but that's just kind of where we are as an industry. Now, where I don't see a lot of proven approaches on is what does a DevOps pipeline look like that is consistent across the Fortune 500 companies, right? What does cloud security strategy look like? Why is it not, hey, follow these 10 things and my cloud strategy looks like your cloud strategy because it's optimized, right? There's no consistency in DevSecOps pipelines. There's no consistency in cloud strategies. Now, there's certain things you may have like source code repositories, like checks for patching of containers, but making sure we standardize as an industry around those key activities and deliverables, I think is where we're going to become much more secure and reduce the complexity that we have in cyber. So let's talk a little bit about cloud because cloud's a very big thing for work from home. It's a lot of companies have rushed through cloud. I have a gut feeling that next year, if you and I were to reconvene at this same exact time, the same exact day, we're going to be talking about all the cloud transformations during COVID, all the mistakes that were made, all the different things that we learned from this quick move to the cloud. Um, the Cloud Security Alliance has done a pretty decent job with creating several cloud frameworks, but what are we still, why is there still a disconnect between security and then IT transformation to the cloud? So I think it is really good at the high level abstract. What are you looking for in a cloud? But where the devil is in the details is we don't just have a cloud. We have 50 clouds, right? And and let me give you an example of that. You may not be fully off your on-prem cloud. You may be pursuing an Azure plus a AWS cloud so that you can use Office 365. And you may have 20 other SaaS providers that you use for tools like Salesforce and other things in your organization. And now it's how do all these cloud providers play together so I can ensure effective identity management? zero trust architectures. And that is where it gets very tricky depending on what tools and what services each cloud provider offers. Great point. Again, I I think the multi-cloud environment is going to be the um, number one, one of the top three reasons why um, data breaches in the cloud occur. Yeah, it's multi-cloud of multiple cloud providers and the hybrid cloud of using on-prem plus some cloud providers of being in both. And the complexity of, well, if I have 50% of my applications well-managed in a cloud provider, what happens with those 50 legacy applications that didn't get moved over? Did they meet all the same cyber compliance objectives? Do they have the same level of patching enforcement? Or can I not actually have the visibility into those systems to know they're well managed? Yeah, um, it's. I can tell you from just some of the conversations I've had with our peers, this IT transformation, this very quick, uh, very quick COVID transformation, and this goes back to the idea of being able to go to lunch with your DevOps people or your cloud folks. You're not getting the full picture on Zoom. You never get the full picture unless you're having a conversation with someone where it's beyond the talking points, right? It's beyond the the, the meeting topic today. It's beyond answering your question. It's that relationship. It's, hey, you know, we're working on these four different projects and this is an AWS and this is an Azure and this is on Google Google Cloud, I'm sorry. And then this is on Oracle. You're like, huh, I didn't know we were using Oracle Cloud. When do we start using yeah. Oracle Cloud? 
And in a great question you could ask developers from a cyber perspective is how can you push code to production and skip all the security checks? Right? Ask any developer on that. And if they'll you it will just kind of open your eyes up to, wow, I didn't realize we could do that. Maybe that's something we need to look at. <laughs> well, and I think that goes back to your initial aspect of, you know, your security passion of, you know, building a committed secure code development process of a DevSecOps, right? Having a good offensive and defensive line. Who is your offensive and defensive line? It's your software engineers, it's your developers, it's it's your, you know, those are the guys who are your offensive line and defensive line. And if you're not talking to them, if you're not working with them, then nothing in your playbook works. Yeah, I really like this idea of the offensive and defensive line. And where I've tried to do this, this was taught to me by Neil Barlow, who's the CISO for overseas at at Capital One, is he says, you need to have two focuses, safeguarding the organization and enabling the organization, safeguarding against the key risks. And and maybe that's the defense part. And the offense is, how do we enable the organization to do what they want to do? Right. So how do we provide that cyber tradecraft to ensure that they understand spear phishing attacks against them? How do we help them meet ISO and SOC 2 compliance so that we can sell our products and make money as an organization and and operate in these uh, countries where we have regulatory issues? Right. And each of these focuses of the safeguard and enable, I think, are what are the core linemen that we need in a cyber organization? You're, you're, you're absolutely correct. I think that we see that more and more now where it's, it's going back to the basics. And you talked about the top 20 CIS. I, was, um, I went to an actual real in-person event about a month ago. Um, it was half virtual, half in-person. And I, it was five minutes from my house here in Atlanta. So I decided I'm going to go in person. Um, and there was a uh, very young um salesman there for a a vendor and he approached me and he you know he goes hey it's my first year selling cyber and i'd love to pick your brain could could i pick your brain and i said go for it and he goes i meet with a lot of customers and you know we talk about nist and we talked about cmmc and i'm like okay he goes but i'm not having a lot of success i'm like well who, who are the businesses you're speaking with and how much of complexities are you building in these frameworks for businesses who may not even have a CIO in place where you're coming in as their outsourced CIO? I go complexities don't add um, any value to people who don't have any experience. They want simplicity. Look at the CIS top 20 and just look at the top eight or nine. That's great blocking and tackling. That's good offense, good defense. It allows you to set a good structure and then from there, build on the relationship, build the trust, build the program, and you'll reach all 20. And then you can start talking about NIST and CMMC and all these different frameworks. And I go, and CMMC isn't for everyone. I go, well, it's a great, it's, 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 it's a great maturity model. It's not for everyone. It's definitely not for, you know, your 30 person accounting firm or your 50 person legal firm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it definitely has to be tailored, right? So if you're that 30 person accounting firm, hey, are you just going to use a SaaS solution like QuickBooks online to do your accounting and know you're compliant? Versus if you are a large KPMG, Deloitte & Touche, big four accounting firm, there are very different requirements and expectations so that you could provide those services to help all of your auditors and accountants perform their key deliverables. Yeah, it's it's know who your customer is. And I think a lot of times people in security organizations, you know, when you're not in an enterprise organization and you go to a smaller company, you sometimes lose track of um, the idea that, you know, I don't, I'm not saying dumb it down, but simplify, simplify to win people over, win them over. Yeah. Yeah, there's a new book that just came out called the CISO Reference Guide, Volume 3. And um, it's really focused on small, medium businesses to help uh, organizations. If you don't have a large security team, what are the things you might think about? So it might be something to uh, read in your spare time. Yeah, obviously, for those who can't see behind me, I have a whole 
library of books and I've actually got a book open right there that nice. I, I, I reference quite frequently um, simply because um, um, as much as you think, you know, it's always good to, you know, cross your T's and, and, and dot your I's just one more time. Um, we, we live in a zero sum game in security. One mistake as, as we saw with, uh, with Michael Johnson over at Capital One, one mistake can be, uh, can be detrimental to your career. Yeah. And, and I want to go back to that simplicity concept that you said, because I think that's really key. So I love the cloud. I love what, you know, security can do in the cloud, but there's other things that quite frankly, I don't think we do as simple as possible. So for example, you look at how many things you have to get right to secure Kubernetes and making sure an organization understands like pod security policies, secure containers, secure host OSs, secure service messages. It's a lot. It is frankly overwhelming for most people to process just how many things can go wrong in this technology. We've not really kept it simple to say, okay, do these three things and we know you're doing secure Kubernetes. And I think as we automate security just to make it as seamless as possible for organizations, that's where we're really going to drive down risk. That's absolutely brilliant. So before we get into our CISO Insight round, which is my favorite round of the show, because we get to know you, Russ, personally, kind of your spare time version of you. Um, One last question, though. What do you think we do well as a community of CISOs and security professionals to help each other? What is one thing that always says... I'm part of the best community on the planet. What's what's that thing for you? I think we've gotten really good at Intel sharing. So if you look at organizations like FSISEC, where banks get together and they share, here's you know malware uh, detection uh, hashes and sums and things like that. That helps all of us stay more secure. Nobody wants to be the victim of ransomware. Nobody wants to have to deal with nation state attackers and these sorts of things. So how can we as a community share this information to better protect all of us from criminals that would harm us? I totally agree. And I think beyond just FSISEC, I think conversations that people have over the phone or just meeting each other. And, and I think in COVID, we've desperately been connecting with people um, through different social platforms and in different events. So it's been, um, it's, it's been great to see that information sharing come through right now, especially beyond just FSISEC, which does an amazing job, by the way. Um, yeah. And there's other sectors, you know, so FSISEC is very geared for financial services, but depending if you're in, you know, healthcare or telecom, you can find relevant, uh, sharing groups to help your organization. And I will say this, reach out to your local CISA coordinator. Every state has a CISA coordinator, a cyber infrastructure security agency from Department of Homeland Security. Those people are amazing. Um, They really are like, they have a passion to protecting your organization. They're not looking to get you in trouble. They're looking to make sure you keep your job and your organization stays out of the headlines and out of trouble. And they're just an unbelievable asset. Um, I can tell you that Clint Walker, who uh, represents CISA here in Atlanta, is just a gem of a guy. Um, someone who I can pick up the phone and, and just ask questions and will get answers. And, and d- d- that's rare. That's really good to hear. That's rare. So while ISACs are great, CISA, that's their entire mission. And they're awesome. So let's get into my favorite part of the show, our CISO Insight Round. Russ, you're on the hot seat. <laughs> okay. Um, I know I love it when I say that to people. They get all like, what do you mean I'm on the hot seat? What hot seat? I thought this was- It burns. Ah. <laughs> Am I walking on hot coals? Am I walking on hot coals? Um, have you ever done that, by the way? No. Is it fun? It's... Um, it's it's a mind game. I, I I figured it's a mind trick. The coals are never as hot as people make you th- as as they seem, right? Coals just generally burn orange. Okay. Like yeah, I I typically avoid playing with fire, but you know, could be fun. As as a former uh, military guy, um, you just find me a reason to go step on something, and 
and and and I'll probably go do that. But um, hot coals on a uh, uh, walking on hot coals is just not as bad as it's like skydiving, right? It looks scary, but it's really not. It's a lot of fun, um, and those hot coals aren't really as hot as they seem. Okay. Um, so. What's one buzzword you'd get rid of forever? I have a buzzword gr- graveyard, and so one buzzword you'd want to bury in there. Oh, probably something like artificial intelligence. AI. Very, very popular. Very popular in our graveyard. In fact, there's so many flowers on that one tombstone. It's, it's, it's Yeah, AI. Totally agree with that. What's one technology that'll change the way we do cybersecurity? I think we're going to have a lot of changes through different automated attempts of chatbots. So an example is, what if instead of having to query 500 people for status reports, you could automate that activity in a chatbot, right? The chatbot reaches out, everybody says, yes, no, it's done. And you have a report that comes back. You've saved millions of man hours by not having someone, you know, have to talk to all those folks every time there's a data call and you've automated that through a technology. That's a, a, a very smart way of using chatbots beyond just annoying the customer on your website and then telling them to wait for a real human. <laughs> um, that, that's brilliant. What's the last book you read? Uh, the last book I read, hmm. You know, probably something like uh, the Dev- uh, the Phoenix Project by Gene Kim. The last movie you saw? Ooh, probably Thor Ragnarok. You know, my family and I were going through a Marvel uh, binge watch, and we're watching every one of them in order. Wow! So you're starting from the very first one, going all the way. All yeah. The way up. So how many? Starting from. We started from, uh, you know, Captain America, and uh-huh. we're all the way through Thor Ragnarok today. Wow, that is uh, that is uh, quite impressive. It's an endeavor, that's for sure. <laughs> and favorite music. So you're probably going to find me listening to something more like techno or some Japanese uh, anime theme songs more than anything else. That's very interesting. Why is that? Well, as I got older, I just wanted to kind of watch a little bit cleaner TV. So I really started watching Japanese anime. And uh, a lot of the shows where they have uh, uh, things like Naruto, uh, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, uh, really trendy upbeat songs at the beginning just get me going even though i don't have a clue what words they're singing in these songs they're just very interesting and exciting maybe it's uh from playing the video games in my youth all the time it just brings back a lot of nostalgia it does um there's there's a saying that music brings uh music doesn't speak in words it speaks to the soul you don't necessarily have to understand the words for the music to be part of your soul yeah it's a very, very, uh, very interesting. And one thing you took away from the COVID-19 crisis. I think the biggest thing is how does it become an opportunity for improvement? So where I've really liked it is one is you could say, Hey, this is really bad. How are we ever going to go back to a normal work environment versus using that as an opportunity to say, Hey, we have a really good chance now to change the way we work forever. What if we wanted to do 100% work from home on a permanent basis, and then we'd be immune to this environment forever, right? How could we save uh, seating capacity and change things and enable IT and change uh, opportunities to hire people from remote locations we've never had before? So instead of just using a disaster as a way to get more money, using it as a way to change and evolve the organization, and I think you're, you're, you're spot on there, which is uh, business has forever changed thanks to COVID-19. And I'm not talking about restaurants or, or mask wearing. I'm just talking about how organizations 
um, are going to be moving forward. Um, I, I read something very interesting before we got on the podcast this morning that the um, Prime Minister of Finland wants to move uh, to a six-hour workday because of remote work in Finland. She goes, well, a six-hour workday would be magnificent for, for most shift employees. And so that was the key was they were talking, she was talking about kind of the idea of a six hour workday being for shift employees. So the traditional shift jobs, um, and not the entrepreneurial or leadership type of thing, but just kind of trying to set some sort of a, uh, work life balance. And it's a very interesting discussion because I feel like, um, since COVID, it's been harder for people to disconnect. It's harder to mm-hmm. put away your laptop. It's harder to walk away um, because you don't have to drive home. You don't have to stop and go pick up uh, uh, dinner, uh, you know, from a restaurant on the way. You're 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 intertwined. You're in you're in one spot, and that's going to be very interesting to see the work life balance of this come come through. Yeah, that's really important. Like, did you just trade your hour commute each way to work with an hour extra of work each, (laughs) you know, before and at the end of your day? Or did you find ways to work smarter to, to drop all those worthless meetings and only have really good meetings, right? Yeah. And and did you find a way um, that, or maybe in those two hours that you saved, are you using those for your professional development? for being hungry, like how you started this podcast, talking about the passion, the hunger, the desire for people to want to learn, right? So in that time, are you, um, you know, reading a book or are you researching something online? Are you trying to solve a problem that exists within your organization? Or it's not really just work, but it's also self-development because it's so hard to do self-development when you spend eight or nine hours at work and another two, two and a half hours on the road. Yeah. So like one key lesson I took into my life is when I started working from home, I sat in my chair all day long and I didn't really get up and, you know, walk around the the office building as much as I used to. So I started knowing my uh, physical fitness was deteriorating. And so I looked at it and I said, okay, what can I do to really change this? One is let's get a nice gaming office chair where it's a lot more comfortable on my back. But then the second thing is, let's add in an hour of exercise activity. So I I started thinking, well, the number one bad thing with COVID is you can't breathe. So if I get a little bit more exercise, I give myself the best chance to prepare against that. And while I'm doing my uh, walks, I typically do about a three-mile walk uh, every morning. What I like to do is put in my headset and uh, listen to podcasts. And so now I'm learning cybersecurity, learning things that I enjoy while also exercising, which gives me more fuel and passion throughout the day. Yeah. Um, I box. I got a boxing bag. I put on my gloves and then I put a picture of, uh, of, of the, uh, the FBI's 10 most wanted terrorists. And that's who I'm punching out every single morning. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Remind me not to get on your bad side. <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 actually pretty. Uh, it's it, my wife laughs at me. She goes, "Why do you have? Why do you just print pictures of random people on the FBI's ten most wanted list?" And I'm like, "If you're gonna punch anyone out, punch out someone who's on the uh, FBI's ten most wanted list. That's pretty much. Uh, you don't get there by accident. You get there for being scum. Pretty much, yeah. So, you know, if you're on the FBI's ten most wanted list." No, your face is on my boxing bag somewhere. <laughs> nice. Um, Russ, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. I really do appreciate it. I know you'll have some very exciting announcements of your own coming up soon, and, and, and I'm really excited to, to see your vision come to fruition. Thanks, James. It's been a pleasure. You know, I'm super excited to be over here and share my insight. And I love learning from you. You're a fantastic interviewer. And uh, anybody who's listening, we're probably going to start a a podcast titled CISO Tradecraft here very shortly. So if you're thinking about becoming a first-time CISO, you're in the middle layers of cyber management and want to develop those executive skill sets to obtain that and improve your life, uh, it'll be a one to follow. Well, once he launches, um, so for those listening now today, uh, the link is not below because it's not yet launched. Once it's launched, though, Russ will send me the link. Uh, I'll probably be one of his first subscribers. 
and um, we'll add it to the description of this podcast below, folks. So you can just click it. It'll take you right to his podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform so you can subscribe um, and, and gain some more insight. Um, there's never enough podcasts people can listen to. I feel like there's always um, good stuff that you can take from every single podcast. So I'm really excited. I think your vision, come. I think this podcast specifically is going to be absolutely uh, a gem for people to listen to. Thank you to. very much, James. Uh, love learning from you as well. All right, folks. That's it. Make sure you subscribe, share, let us know what you think. You can do that by hashtagging SysoTalk. You can, um, you know, if you're going to argue your point with us, just please, please, please make it smart. Please, please, smart arguments only. Please, begging you, please. That's it for us here today. We'll be back with more next week. Until then, folks, stay cyber safe.